Good morning. I, you know what about Wes? I, I just, it just struck me this morning, if Shea Guevara had gotten uh, to be the age that Wes is, it, it's, it, that, can't you see that on a poster? Uh, uh, I don't know. It, do what? A wanted poster. <laughs> yeah. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me here this morning. Uh, and uh, this is a topic dear to my heart and I've wanted to talk about this for a long time. I have tried to talk about it, actually, but at, uh, after the pandemic, then it became a subject of uh, really um, uh, vital concern uh, to talk about. Um, uh, I, um, um, I had a postgraduate degree in psychology, and uh, I was working on my doctorate there when my wife had a stroke. and ended up being back in Nashville from Phoenix and pastoring at Christ Church those years. But um, uh, when the pandemic came, the state of Tennessee sent all of us that had been in mental health a letter saying, we could use your help, please come back and we'll send you your license. Uh, just send us your credentials first. And so I uploaded my credentials, but instead of my credentials, I had uploaded uh, pictures of ducks out on a uh, uh, lake. And so, you know, at mental health board, the lady said, I enjoyed the ducks, but I don't think they're going to allow this to stand for your, uh, anyway, but uh, uh, you, know how, you know how you tell the difference between the doctors and the patients in the psych ward. Well, the doctors all have badges, and, it, and it, so it's pretty easy to, to distinguish them. Uh, I'm going to just apologize this morning for life. I've I've scripted this more carefully because I know this is recorded and and I don't mind being quoted, but I don't want to be misquoted. And also, I don't want the enthusiasm to say something that I regret. Uh, and uh, I want to honor also the trust that you've placed in me to make this a safe discussion. I want to talk to you about what uh, pastors are not telling you about their mental health. So it's about a mental health crisis that's affecting our clergy and other church leaders, and that's risky. You'd have rather heard a more uplifting uh, topic this morning. I'd rather have an uplifting topic. But uh, let's, let's launch in. Your pastor may be fine, by the way, uh, and you may be fine, and everyone on your church uh, staff may be fine. Uh, in that case, you'll wonder what I'm talking about and why I'm making such a fuss, raising a 5 alarm, uh, fire, a fire alarm here. So let's start with the Barna group. They're pretty trusted as a source of information for most of us for many years. Barna says that in October of October, uh, 2021, 51% of pastors serving Protestant mainline churches and 34% of pastors serving non-denominationally aligned evangelical churches would like to quit their jobs. The reasons pastors giving a give for not quitting is that they're too far along in their career to make a decent living elsewhere. That's one. And the other one is they can't deal with the guilt of abandoning their calling. So at least for now, uh, these pastors keep moving through the motions of pastoral ministry. Now, I suspect that the numbers of disenchanted pastors would uh, be higher if Barna had talked with employees serving on church staffs. Uh, in most churches, the staff has nearly no voice 
or any power to act on their own behalf. That much of my talk this morning is conjecture. Your church may have a stellar HR department and everyone on your church staff may feel free, absolutely free, to voice all their challenges and disagreements without fear of recrimination, and I hope that's the case. But what I do want to do this morning is to dig underneath Barna's raw statistics. I want to ask, what is going on and what can we do about it? I've organized my response to those questions under five uh, uh, titles here, uh, uh, subcategories, and you can do it like at church. It's like he's, oh gosh, he said there was three points and he's on point two, but we're, you know, so that, that'll be fun. Here's the five points. We have redefined church. Secondly, we have redefined the pastor's role. Thirdly, we are losing transcendence. Four, many of us struggle with doubts about our faith. And five, few of us have a safe person with whom we can share our inner life and intimate thoughts. So let's go to the first one, redefining church. The various historic church expressions have always defined church a bit differently. So Baptists and Anglicans and Churches of Christ are been debating for centuries about what constitutes a church, but that's not the differences I have in mind this morning. What I have in mind are the shifts we have made in the last several decades that have transformed our churches into a business, a brand, a political recruitment center, or some other kind of secular gathering. In the name of greater efficiency, which I think we have achieved, by the way, we have gradually lost our conviction that church is meant to be an embassy of heaven, an outpost of eternity, or an opportunity to taste of the powers of the world to come. Obviously, our churches continue to talk about Jesus and eternity, but I would argue that the reorganization of our churches around marketing, management, felt needs, or political causes mutates the very essence of church work. And over time, this kind of reorganization morphs church into something different than what it's ever been before. When that happens, our stated values are no longer our actual values. What we preach on Sunday becomes inconsistent with how we conduct ourselves Monday through Saturday, even on our church staffs. Spiritual life ebbs away. Our ethics and morals no longer can be presented as evidence to the world that the people of God walk a different path than those who do not follow Christ. Church as business or brand strives only to succeed. And that mostly means that our church must find ways of drawing in more noses and nickels than the other churches. The need for better lighting, up-to-date sound, and visible connections to the well-connected becomes obsessions of the church. Making these kinds of concerns the center of what church is all about has been seriously changing the nature of what church leaders do. Which brings me to my second point, a redefinition of the pastoral role. Through the ages, 
pastors have taken vows of ordination mostly based upon the Apostle Paul's instructions to church leaders and his, apostles, and his epistles. These vows differ a bit depending on the, the specific church in question where the ordination takes place. But they have embodied a stated desire on the part of the person entering ministry to teach and live in such a way that the transformation of life promised by Christ becomes visible and attractive to the watching world. The word pastor means shepherd. In most language, it's not even a different word because we inherit both Germanic and Latin base in our language. We have two words, but in most languages, it's exactly the same word. A shepherd of a sheep, a shepherd of a church, the same word. The 23rd Psalm is what lies behind this Christian definition of leadership. The restoration of the soul. That's what the way that psalm is organized around that phrase. He restores my soul. And Jesus links himself to this psalm by claiming to be the good shepherd. He calls his disciples to follow him in, uh, in the work of being good shepherds. So in the last night on, his, on earth with his disciples, he makes a point of this by washing their feet and serving at the table. Pastors and church leaders fail at this. They always have. But it's always been the goal of church leaders to make Christ known through the spoken word and by modeling the life of Christ through our lives. The alteration of church into a business or a brand or a political recruitment center requires us to change the kind of leaders that we look for. Our primary concern in this case is, rather about, is, is rarely about whether a leader exhibits a saintly or a wise life or knows the scripture well. In extreme cases, we may even settle for a scoundrel if the scoundrel seems to have the gifts our churches need to grow and to expand their brand. I realize it's taking things to the extreme. Nobody wants their pastor to be a scoundrel. But if what I'm saying even is in a little bit recognizable, then we need to realize we're in trouble. I want to suggest to you this morning that most of the pastors that are thinking about leaving the ministry in Barnes Pole are not spiritually marginal, lazy, do-nothings. Many of them are spiritually hungry, biblically centered, compassionate men and women. They entered church work because they were called. But the problem is what they thought they were called to has turned out not to be very important in today's church world. Third, a loss of transcendence. One of the most impactful books in the contemporary Western uh, world written in the last few years was Charles uh, Taylor's uh, Secular Age. For 700 pages, Taylor makes the point that the peoples of North Europe, Northern Europe and North America have gradually dismissed the idea and the experience of transcendence. John Lennon said the same thing in one short sentence. Imagine, above us only sky. That's what we mean by the loss of transcendence. Above us only sky. 
There is a kind of a practical agnosticism that can overtake a church and its leaders, including, strangely enough, our worship leaders. It happens when technique replaces mystery and awe. When church work becomes so smooth and professional, becomes such a well-oiled machine that it evokes no sense of wonder or even makes room for such moments, we can be forgiven for not treating it any differently than we do any other institution. There's an old Appalachian hymn that makes the point. Brethren, we have come to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the word? All is vain except the spirit of the mighty one come down. Brethren, pray and holy manna will be showered all around. All is vain except the spirit of the mighty one come down. Please understand I'm not trying to ignore the pragmatic needs of a contemporary church. I like good lighting and sound also. And church work is not just about praying all the time and floating away on a cloud. We're human beings serving other human beings in a specific material time and place. Nonetheless, is there anything about our church life that ever opens the soul to the presence of God? Have we become such intimacy-impaired controllers that there's no possibility that the Spirit of the Mighty One will make His appearance among us? Taylor said that Christians, conservative and progressive alike, have lost the notion of transcendence along with everybody else. Could that be why our churches, whether conservative or progressive, have become so politically obsessed? If above us is only sky, what else is there except preoccupation with earthly concerns? Which brings me to point number four. Doubts about our faith. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but many church leaders harbor what is for them terrifying thoughts that what we represent may not have much objective reality. Christianity, after all, is not known anymore for its serious reflection on science and philosophy. We get passionate about our ideas of morals and ethics, but we evoke these in pretty selective ways, or so it seems to the world around us and even to a lot of our own children and grandchildren. After 12 decades of revolutions in physics and informational sciences, Christianity offers very little guidance on what these things mean or how they compare and contrast with our faith. For the most part, we've just been singing together and talking about politics. 
I'm exaggerating again. Francis Collins, who headed the Genome Project and the NIH, is an evangelical Christian. He's written about extensively about knowledge of DNA and RNA and what that implies about God and creation. And there's many more believers scattered throughout the scientific disciplines. But the voices of Christian thinkers like Collins are exceptions. And furthermore, they have to constantly defend themselves against their fellow believers as well as against unbelievers. In such an environment, Christian leaders who think and read begin to entertain the thought that perhaps the reason Christianity is not saying anything about these matters is because our faith has nothing much to say. And weary of talking about good lighting, the church's brand, and our market share, and the church's targeted audience, some of our most devout church workers are just giving up. Finally, we come to this last point that nearly all church workers will agree with. Church work is lonely and often emotionally and vocationally unsafe. Church workers and their families experience the same thing as anyone else. Our kids develop addictions. For that matter, so do we. We face marriage struggles. We age. We get anxious. We can be sexually frustrated and in difficulties that way. We go through bouts of depression. And as I just mentioned, we wonder sometimes if we're doing what the Apostle Peter passionately denied following cleverly devised fables. These conditions affect the most dedicated and sincere church workers as much as they do everyone else. And still, their job requires cheerfulness, optimism, an unwavering commitment to the beliefs and practices of our faith, absorbing the criticism of their congregants, surfing over all the political realities of the church communities and keeping people happy so they won't change churches, sitting with dying people and still making that early morning appointment, and on and on. This is not so different than what workers in a bank or a retail store faces. The difference is that many of us have no private life. We have no close friend with whom it is safe to share our fears and our anger. And as our churches have grown ever more strident about cultural issues, church leaders can't afford to have a different opinion than their congregants, and they can't even be uninterested in the fight. They don't have that option. With this new accumulating pressure, a church worker who wants to keep his job has to learn to be coy or, unfortunately, just say whatever the congregants want him to say. It's not impossible, though it is challenging, for a pastor to find a confidant in the congregation he serves. But hard experience teaches us that when the pressure is on, that information is going to leak. For the most part, co-workers are not safe confidence either. 
Now, I had the great fortune of having an entirely safe and life-giving relationship with the chairman of our church board in the last church I served. Even in disagreement, he was always a Christian gentleman and entirely ethical. I love him and respect him very, very highly. But unfortunately, this is an exception. So I'm going to wrap up. My plea to you this morning is that you'll really seriously consider that our church workers need competent and confidential help. I see them often, and I hear all this stuff. Through the global pandemic and a toxic political environment that shows no sign of improving anytime soon, our pastors have learned they simply cannot please us. And they're not allowed to take any path of moderation either. In the light of the changes of church work I've talked about here today, there's less and less reason for anyone but a masochist to show up for leadership in many of our churches. Something has to change. Something has to change. The first thing that can change is simple. We've got to learn to love one another again. That includes providing a means for pastors to discharge the trauma they have suffered in these last few years. We can also work to recover the sense of the sacred, transcendent core of church as an outpost of eternity and the gathering place for the family of God. We can stop worshiping our facilities and grounds. And most of all, we can stop fighting our unbelieving neighbors in the name of Christ. You cannot save people that you're at war with. You cannot expect anyone to give you a fair listen to Jesus Christ transforms us into creatures of eternity when you've denounced them and hated them. We've got to serve one another. And we've got to serve our cultural adversaries. You've got to decide whether you're going to be in a culture war or you're going to be an intercessor for the souls of people who are perishing because you can't do both. We can bring down the heat and make our churches safe places again for everybody. I heard the Lord say, come unto me all, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As a mental health professional who has been a pastor for my entire adult life, I can assure you that what I've shared with you today is real. And I urge you in the name of Christ to start caring for our spiritual caregivers. And I can tell you that these are the sort of things that your pastor may not feel safe to reveal to you about the state of his or her own mental health. Indeed, your pastor may not even recognize these, same, these things in himself. We have trained him not to. So it's time for us to make some changes. And I'll leave with you here today. I have been working on creating delivery mechanisms for 
pastors that are in need of mental health care. And uh, there's other people doing that as well. And we've got, we've got to continue up that so pastor can go to a safe place and talk. Let us love our God supremely. Let us love each other too. Let us love and pray for sinners till our God makes all things new. Then he'll call us home to heaven and at his table we'll sit down. Christ will gird himself. He'll serve us with sweet manna all around.